That's Philippians 4, verses 10 to 23. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you have no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts, what I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. It may be I've preached more sermons in this building than anyone else, which seems pretty astonishing to me. And some very nice things have been said. And I don't just want to deflect them away, I want to receive them in as much as they're true, and thank you. But really there's one verse that is in our passage today that really needs to be at the centre of everything, even if in the passage we're thinking about ourselves a great deal. And that's just verse 20. And let me read that now as we look at God's word. And let's make this our prayer. To our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. People have described Philippians as a missionary prayer letter, which is a bit reductionist, but has a certain point to it. And it felt a suitable thing for us to look at the last few months of my ministry for all sorts of reasons. It was actually the first series I did at Eden. I don't suppose anyone will remember it, but it really was, and it is the only book in which I've repeated a series, or at least gone back to the same book. I'm not sure there's much that's very recognisable from 1996. And much of Philippians is about the relationship between a church and a leader. My relationship to Eden is not at all the same as Paul's relationship to the Philippians. He was, uh, he was the founding church uh, planter uh, of the church and continued to exercise an apostolic, a leadership role, even though he wasn't present with them. And I'm no, neither of those things. And yet there are some commonalities. And we can think of it perhaps as a kind of triangle that he's writing about in terms of his relationship with them. 
Um, at uh, the bottom two uh, corners of the triangle, there are the Philippians, the church in Philippi, on one side. And on the other, there is the Apostle Paul, with whom uh, they have the special relationship. And then at the apex is the Lord Jesus Christ. And in many ways, the letter is a working out of the dynamics of that relationship. And so I don't just want to preach a kind of generic sermon about Philippians this morning, but to um, point to some ways in which there's a similar sort of triangle. It's not identical, but a similar sort of triangle that's there in terms of my relationship with you over the years. You at one corner, me at another, and the Lord Jesus Christ on high. And just to suggest that there are ways of laying those on top of each other or or next to each other that I think are illuminating and helpful for us uh, as uh, we go forward, uh, as we remain uh, one family, but in which I have a very different role. And the three aspects that the Lord, I think, wants to draw out of the text for us this morning really uh, are just driven by the text. And in all my preaching, I've simply tried to release the energy uh, of a text and not to impose things on it. And the the three things that the Lord is wanting us to recognise and think about and be invited into uh, and have reflected back to us this morning are contentment, concern and confidence. Contentment, concern, and confidence. We notice in verse 10 that Paul starts, as he has done so much, simply with a great deal of joy. I rejoiced greatly. In the law, this is something that the Lord Jesus Christ has given him. And he speaks there of their concern for him. The practical way in his relationship with them in which they've shown that they love him and support him. Now, we'll come on to that a little bit in a moment, uh, the the details of that, because then he he sort of breaks for a bit and comes back to it in verse 14. But right at the start, one of the things I want to be reflecting back to you is my very great joy in your care and concern and love and support and acceptance, and receptivity, and help over the years. I have been rejoicing greatly in that. And even in the last two or three weeks, I've come to see in a, I dare say, a a deeper and richer way, if that were possible, just what that has looked like, and what it has looked and felt like to be loved by a church community. In terms of Paul's relationship with the Philippians, he is saying to them that he's over the moon because after a bit of a break, they've had the opportunity to send him some money, which he needed. But Paul has a carefully nuanced relationship with money. And he's very keen not to try and exploit people. And very keen uh, in many instances to show that it's great to have money, but he's not going to rely on them for it. And so in verse 11, he quickly says, I'm not writing that back to try to manipulate you into giving me a bit more. I'm not saying this because I'm in need. And what follows is a truly remarkable statement about contentment in the Christian life. 
This in itself would be well worth a a sermon. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learnt to be content, whatever the circumstances. Isn't that simply remarkable? I wonder how content you are. I wonder how far away you feel from that point of Christian contentment and maturity. It surely is a very great thing. Suppose you could sell bottles saying, 9.99, drink a sip every morning and you'll be content. And people would be paying nine million pounds for them, not nine pounds 99. Contentment. In the ancient world, contentment was very often seen as something that was driven within. And the Greek Stoic philosophers used this word, and it literally meant having a resource within yourself, a self-sufficiency independent of circumstances. And those Stoics prided themselves on having those inner resources in which out of your own strength and discipline you could meet any situation. And it could be that Paul's sounding a little bit like that. He talks about being able to be content in any kind of situation. They saw it as the essence of all virtues. It described the cultivated attitude of the wise person who become independent of all things and all people, relying on himself and able by the power of his own will to rest, to resist the force of circumstances. There's something there that is similar to what Paul's saying, but most of it's completely different. He is talking about a kind of learnt and developed inner survival kit that produces contentment. To that extent, there's some alignment with the Stoics. And indeed, to all sorts of modern philosophies and modern practices that help us to regulate mood and to deal with circumstances. Much of it, much of it very, very helpful. But there is a crucial difference. And the crucial difference is that that inner survival kit, that learned and developed way of living, is based on the indwelling of Christ and the power of Christ himself. It does not come from the self. Verse 13. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. And it is remarkable what he's learned, isn't it? Learn to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and he surely did. You just have to read bits of 2 Corinthians to realise the extremes of his experience. I know what it is to have plenty, and we seem to know a little less about that, but clearly he did know times when there was plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Doesn't that increase your appetite? Don't you think, I want to be like that? Don't you think, oh, that's Paul, I could never be like that? My friend, you can be. 
Paul did not have a bigger Christ than you do. You have the same Christ. And you can have the same contentment. As someone has put it, you too have resources within yourself to meet the situations of life more than you know. Paul had no more of God than you do, only more determination to use what he had. And you have the same spirit from the same Christ. Then you can do more than you think and meet the changes and challenges of life with more faith and victory than you imagine possible now. But notice one thing that I've left out. It's that word, learnt. One of the crucial ingredients is simply learning over time. This was Paul writing in his maturity. And because he learnt it, it meant there was a time when he didn't have it. And in that we find great encouragement. It really is so important. He didn't just get there. You see, we don't become mature saints overnight. It's the work of years. A tree takes longer to grow than a buttercup. And so does a person in Christian contentment. One of the very greatest, probably the greatest, City Centre Cambridge pastor was Charles Simeon at Holy Trinity. An amazing ministry, far, far longer than mine, far, far more influential. Though interestingly, most of the time, he only had 100 people in front of him. It's not all about numbers, it's about depth. But Simeon was astonishingly used of God. In his early years in Cambridge... He, he was single and he used to um, uh, go out on his own on his horse. And he used to ride over to the wonderfully named village of Yelling, somewhere to the uh, west of here, where there was an older minister uh, who had had an amazing ministry in the north of England with revival in it, uh, Mr. Venn. Uh, but his wife had died and he couldn't quite cope with such a big church. So he went to this village and he was there with his uh, teenage daughters. And he would go and, uh, Simeon would ride over and see Venn. And one day they were having tea in the garden and Simeon, who um, had moments when he could be a bit abrasive early on, let's put it that way. He, he was a bit cocky or abrasive or pushy or something in the conversation. And when he'd ridden back to Cambridge, uh, one of the daughters said to her, oh, dad, or probably said papa, um, he's, he's, yeah, he's, he's, he's not, you know, he doesn't seem very gentle. And Mr. Venn said, just go out into the garden and go to the peach tree and pick me a peach. And this was, I suspect, July. Her daughter went out to the uh, garden, picked a peach, brought it back. And Mr. Venn said, what's, what's the peach like? And she said, oh, it's all green and hard. And Venn said... Let's leave it there for a few more months and there'll be rain and there'll be sunshine and then it'll be right. 
That's what it's going to be with Mr. Simeon. Let's give him time. One of the things I'm really grateful for is that you've given me time. I'm not pretending to have arrived at a point of um, of, uh, total sweet maturity. There are all sorts of ways in which this text takes me onward and says, come on, you need to learn this for yourself. But I was pretty pushy and angular when I arrived, and I said all sorts of things in meetings that I look back and hold my head in shame about. And even over the years, there have been bad moments. But one of the ways in which you as a church family have loved me is giving me time to grow. And that's been an incredibly precious gift. Growth in the Christian life comes through grace, as we'll see. It comes through communities, we'll see. It also comes just through time. And if, as is pretty likely, you appoint someone to succeed me who's uh, rather younger than me, not impossible it could be someone my age, but likely to be younger. Remember Simeon and the peach story. Give them time as well. And for that person who's thinking, well, in my circumstances, I don't see how I could be content. Let me say to you, the Lord can give you contentment and you can learn it. You can learn it through good times, though that's a slightly complicated lesson, but it can happen, as Paul knew. It can also happen through the times of need. Just as last week I was talking to a friend who's the same age as me. Her husband's a little older. Out of the blue, he had a heart attack and died two and a half years ago. We've been praying for her and occasionally talk with her and talk with her last week about our plans and then I said and how are you how are you doing and she talked a bit about some of her plans for changes in her life and then she said to me I'm now closer to Christ than I was before my husband died Contentment. You can learn it. God offers it to you. If you will learn the lessons and give it time. But then having talked about his contentment that he finds, he is very keen to come back and say, actually, thank you very much indeed for sending the money. The money's been great. Verse 14. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. And it was more than collecting up a few coins and sending them in a bag to Rome. It was sharing in his troubles. There was a sense of joining together. And I think we've experienced that a lot in my time at Eden, of people sharing their troubles. Certainly you've shared my troubles, and I've been very grateful uh, for that uh, over the years. This is expressed um, financially. And with money, there's always, um, some, there's always the potential for, for things to be a bit tricky in all sorts of different ways. Paul was very keen that he wasn't going to take money from too many people because he didn't want to be seen to be uh, a kind of um, shuckster who was just out to manipulate and, and, and take money. And so many, many, with many churches, he just refused to and insisted on doing his leatherwork instead. 
Somehow with the Philippians, he felt a kind of confidence that it would be all right. And we don't know why. It was something about his relationship with them. and meant he was ready to receive money. And they were generous in giving him money. And we read in 2 Corinthians 8 to 10 just how generous they had been in giving money. And money here is an expression of more than just money, an expression of general concern. But do you know the reason that he was most excited about it? Verse 17, not that I desire your gifts. Didn't just want the money, helpful though it was. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that they get more money if they give more? Sometimes it can work that way, but actually it's something far bigger and bolder and more wonderful. I've received full payment, he says, and I've more than enough. I'm amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus, who was the messenger boy, the gifts you sent. And then he reflects on their significance, these gifts. There's something beautiful to God. A fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Isn't that wonderful that money can become that? And the practical concern and care as well are that. They're far more than the time spent. They're far more than the check written or the gift given. There's something that becomes beautiful to God. Over the years, you've been enormously generous to us in all sorts of ways. I've always felt very well paid and been great in that respect. That's not the most of it. Care, concern, solicitousness on our behalf, thank you. And as now we transition to be mission partners, and the church has amazingly agreed to uh, give us very generously in terms of financial support and other ways. Again, we just want to say thank you. Thank you for those things. And I want to step back and take it out of the kind of Julian and Debbie connection here and just sort of address generally this attitude of practical concern expressed in money and time and care. You see, each of us has a self-protective quality in which we wonder if we give things away, will we lose out? And of course, the great message of the gospel is that we don't. We really, really don't. There was a man who was a true Christian believer and a fine disciple, and he was very successful and rich. And then disaster came. It wasn't his doing. And he lost it all. And he summed up his experience in these words, before I had God in everything, now I have everything in God. Now, that was involuntary. But in the giving of ourselves, in the giving of time and money and other things, we lose something that we could not hold on to. And we gain something that we cannot get any other way. Someone else has said, what I gave, I kept. And what I kept, I lost. That's true of all our money and all our possessions and all our time. And actually, the main point I want to make is not a challenge to give more in terms of time or anything else. Though maybe the Lord will say to someone this morning, you could give a bit more in time or money. That, that may happen. My main point really is just to reflect that this is what I've experienced and observed at Eden. 
And not just to thank you on my own behalf, but to say I believe your giving of time and money is something which smells really good to the Lord Jesus Christ. He absolutely loves smelling it. It's a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Can you hear that? Can you receive it? Can you allow yourself to echo and resonate with his pleasure in your practical concern, not just for your pastor, but the other church staff, many church mission partners, and in other ways? When we start talking about giving, though, we often get rather anxious and self-protective responses. And I think it's very telling and important that in verse 19, Paul anticipates those and gives us this amazing promise. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. That's his word to you this morning. This isn't a promise about particular levels of financial success or even that you, you give a lot of money away, you'll get an equal amount back. It's not that at all. It has to be set in the context of the uh, letter as a whole and his great call to imitate Christ in self-giving. He does say God will meet all your needs. He's already saying God gives you the strength to do that. And now he says God will meet all of your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. A wonderful picture of infinite riches. And we see it particularly in the finished work of Christ, in his cross, his resurrection, his gift of the Spirit, and his promise of ultimate return. He will meet all of your needs. Do you know that's been very much my experience? I keep a journal. I've got, I think it's probably 15 or 16 of books, most of them not like this. This was uh, a one-off. This goes back to early days at Eden, and indeed a little bit before. Interesting to trace some of my entries. 23rd of August, 1996. I'm sitting in my new study, 96 Arbury Road. That was the second manse in those days. On the brink of starting my first post-seminary minister ministry, as Associate Pastor of Eden Baptist Church, Cambridge, I cannot imagine a job I would rather have. The next five or six years were full of surprises, and I'm going to fast forward over some of those, though it's been salutary to read them. And to fast forward to the 27th of August, 2002, uh, by which time... Uh, the church had called me to be senior pastor rather than associate. The tone is different. On the brink of the new start, I'm feeling my usual wobbly self. Don't want to do it. (laughs) Don't feel up to it. (laughs) Don't feel at all inspired or driven or passionate or even able to do it. Feel I've nothing much to give at Eden. 
Feel the burden of expectation, feel the burden of a lot of preaching with no room for innovation or flexibility, feel the loss of another colleague, feel all in all pretty wobbly. <laughs> Lord, I sometimes write the prayers, I don't feel at all capable of what lies ahead, not even in the most mechanical of senses. Help me, amen. <laughs> and, and, um, and he has. Our confidence for the church and confidence for us as we do this crazy thing. He will meet all of our needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. He gives us more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sends us more strength when the labors increase. To greater affliction he adds his great mercy to multiplied trials, his multiplied peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed with the day but half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is scarcely begun. His love has no limit, his grace has no measure, his power has no boundary known among men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he gives us and gives us and gives yet again. And he will. I think the sermon illustration I've used more than any other, though I don't keep a record of such things, is of a winter in North America. And the scene is of the Mississippi River, I think at this point a mile wide and frozen over. And a man decided to try to walk from one side to the other. Halfway across, he panicked because he feared that the ice was thin and would give way. And so what he did was to get down on his hands and knees, or rather to put his whole body weight on the ice and sort of claw his way forward. Of course, it was slow progress. He became cold, wet, and he was shivering. He became aware of a noise behind him and he looked up. And he looked up and he saw a man on a sled. And the sled was being pulled by two horses. And he was carrying a cargo of pig iron. And the man on the sled, who was going rather quicker than the guy on the ice, waved at him cheerfully and then (laughs) headed off for the other bank. Friends, the ice will hold us. But you can choose to go to heaven, crawling along it, getting wet and cold and shivering and thinking that it won't. It will hold you. Or you can get behind a sled and get a couple of horses, which is the power of the Holy Spirit and the promises of the gospel and the power of the Lord, and go a very different way. The second director of the China in the Mission was a man called Dixon Host. He took over from, excuse me, from... um, Hudson Taylor was a very different sort of character, but he led the China in the mission, a very significant mission, um, for a number of years, 20 or 30 years, I think, and then he came to retirement in 1937, and he gathered the mission council around him. And he could tell that they were a bit dismayed at the thought of him moving on. And he said to them, count on God. And the narrator says, 
And there was the confidence born of long experience in his voice. Count on God for the future. Reckon on his faithfulness. Contentment, concern, confidence. And to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's take a moment to pray and then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Our loving Father, we want to thank you for the experience that we've had together in Eden. And that this is something which has been, it's just been your work. It really is for all the good things, to you be the glory. Help us, Lord, to learn contentment, to feel your pleasure in our concern, and for us to have confidence that you will meet all of our needs. In Christ's name, amen.